Hello, everyone. It's a delight to remember the Lord's good gospel today with you. Even though we can't be together, it's a treat, and I'm thankful for the scriptures, and I'm thankful for this church and the Lord's promise to keep us until the very end. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Let's read there together. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we dig into his word. Father in heaven, I'm deeply grateful for the gospel. I'm deeply grateful for Christ, and I'm deeply grateful for the Spirit's work in sinners like me. Father, I am so grateful for the hope of the gospel that is extended to each of us that we might look at our sin and look at the great chasm between us and our sinfulness and you and your holiness, and we might see a Christ who is willing and able to span that gap for us. Father, I pray that you would come, that you would help this preacher and these listeners. Father, I pray that you would anoint me for this task, and I pray that you would use your word to do the good and great and glorious things it has done since you've given it. Lord, we pray that you might bear witness and bear fruit in our lives by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. Last week, we looked at the first six verses of Psalm 51. We talked about how this psalm fits within a genre or a style of psalms known as the penitentials. These songs showcase the journey of sinners as they approach God in repentance and faith. The penitential psalms are really, truly a precious gift to us as you and I navigate the road of repentance, as you and I struggle with the grief of our sin and our longing to be with God and to pursue Him and to enjoy His paths of righteousness. God has given us songs, Psalm 51 being one of them, to help us make that road trip from our guilt and our grieving of our sin back into God's paths of righteousness. Kids, can I get your attention? I know you're coloring and I know you're having a good time, but can I get your attention here right at the beginning? Do you have any special songs for special occasions at your house and in your family? Have you been singing a song while you wash your hands? Have you been singing a song at your house when you pick up toys? Do you sing at birthday parties? I know it's very common for us at our house to sing during birthday parties. It would feel completely strange to have a birthday party without cake, without candles, without singing. We also, at my house, we like to sing a song before we eat dinner together, giving praise to God for the many blessings that He gives, even our meals. Songs can help us do the things we need to do. They can help keep us focused, and they can direct our hearts toward what is important. Psalm 51, like the other penitential psalms, helps us focus on moving away from sin and shame toward God and joy in Him. Today, I want to continue in the same big idea we were in last week, that Psalm 51 is proof that God gives sinners a song for coming back to Him. God gives sinners a song for coming back to Him. I highlighted last week that the first six verses of this song illustrate the true chasm between God and people, the huge, huge, huge distance between sinners like you and me and the one true and holy, righteous God. So today, within the same idea, this same song for coming back to God, I want to highlight two essential truths. I'm not going to lay them both out for you. I'm just going to do one at a time, okay? The first essential truth is this. The pain of conviction precedes the prayer of repentance. The pain of conviction precedes the prayer of repentance. We're going to highlight this specifically in verses 7 through 12. So point number one, essential truth number one, the pain of, of conviction precedes the prayer of repentance. In verse 7, our song speaks of the desire to be purged and made clean, to be washed and made pure. We see the pain of conviction, that realization of having sinned against God. It causes an inner sense of dirtiness and impurity. The Holy Spirit works in the believer's heart so that when the saint chooses to sin, we feel conviction and it feels like dirtiness, and not just dirtiness on our hands, but dirtiness within. As our minds and our bodies react to a clumsily changed diaper or a long and sweaty day at work, 
So the Spirit drives us to want to be cleaned of our sin. Psalm 51 shows us what to do with this inner sense of wanting to be clean. In this verse, David speaks of hyssop. Do you see that word, hyssop, in verse 7? And when he speaks of this flowering plant, he's referencing a tool of the Levitical priests who would use hyssop to sprinkle sacrificial blood for the purification of sins. Many of you have tried to read through the Bible. Many of you have read through the Bible. But one of the tricky parts is getting stuck in the laws, in the books of the law, the books of Moses, where there's all of these uh, ceremonies and all of these actions where people are sprinkling blood all over the place. And it's quite a remarkable thing. But all of this is pointing to something greater, something heavenly, something um, remarkable. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain this act of purification, all of these laws and ceremonies. The writer of Hebrews says, when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, there it is again, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So blood sprinkled about with this hyssop was absolutely central. It was a a specific and central tool for the purification of worship. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What could be better than those bulls and goats? It says in verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What sacrifice could be better than the blood of bulls and goats? Well, the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. What could be better than the purification that would come by the sprinkling of blood from the tool hyssop? Well, the blood of Christ, which purifies us. David sees in these ceremonies given to us by Moses, he sees in those ceremonies God's mercy. He sees God's willingness to help the outcast and the impure. And when he asks to be purged with hyssop, he is speaking of an image that points us to Jesus who would shed his sacrificial blood at the cross so that we might have a sure confidence that God is more willing and more able to make us pure by the blood of Christ. God is more than willing. God is more than able to make us pure by the blood of Christ. And so when the psalmist talks about hyssop and about being sprinkled and purged, he's looking back to what God had had given as a precursor to Christ. And so for us looking back through the cross of Christ, we can see that the hyssop, we can see that the blood of the bulls and goats was pointing us to a final and perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ where we would know, looking at the cross, that God was more than willing and more than able to make purification for our sins. And he's done that in Christ. 
Now, before I go any further, to speak of the pain of conviction that leads to the prayer of repentance, I want to comment about the difference between the way the Spirit leads us and the way that Satan leads us. Both the Spirit and Satan will use the painful awareness of sin for their purposes. The major difference between the Holy Spirit's work of conviction and Satan's work of condemnation is that though God will reveal our dirtiness to us, and this will be painful, this will be hard, when God reveals our dirtiness, He does it to reveal it to us along with a confidence that God is willing and able to make us clean. Satan reminds us of our sin, he reminds us of our dirtiness, but he leaves us in that place of dirtiness. He does it with shaming and hopelessness. He does it with this lie that says God doesn't and God can't make us clean. Satan drives us away from God and the Spirit drives us to God. You know the difference, don't you? You know that feeling of of guilt and of shame and of feeling dirty in your sin. And you can know that the Spirit is using that for your good if He is driving you to God. But if you are feeling that guilt and that shame, that dirtiness for your sin, and you just feel like you've got to get away from God, you can understand that the evil one is using that against you. He's condemning you and making you feel hopeless, and he's lying to you about who God is and what God wants to do with sinners. God is willing, God is able, and the cross is the perfect proof of that, that God is willing and able to care and purify sinners. And so, be mindful to follow the Spirit as you feel that pain of conviction, but be aware that Satan will also want to remind you of your sin and drive you away from God. Psalm 51.7, then, is a beautiful picture of what repentance looks like. Repentance is a painful awareness of our sin that drives us to Jesus with a confidence that God is willing and able to purify us from all unrighteousness. In verse 8, our song shows us that conviction of sin saps our joy and it saps our gladness. It can make us feel like God has broken our bones. David speaks about this in Psalm 32, another penitential song. He says there in Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God will often steer us and lead us and direct us to repentance with a shortage of joy. We may look at our lives and just feel like nothing satisfies, nothing makes me happy, I can't get joy. But understand that the Spirit may be using that to drive us to repent, driving us to be closer to the Lord and to trust His good promises. The evil one, again, applying what we just talked about, the evil one will take that shortage of joy and he'll throw that in your face and say, you aren't happy because God's angry with you. And he'll never forgive you, and he'll never give you joy. But the psalmist helps us here in verse 8 to see that a shortage of joy is intended as pain of conviction to lead us to a prayer of repentance. Verse 8 goes on 
to help us learn that the prayer of repentance recognizes that joy and gladness belong to God and cannot be truly found in sin. Repentance is seeking God for the gift of happiness instead of burying ourselves in more and more attempts to find happiness on our own. Repentance brings us to God in humble prayer. And with a lack of repentance, we will see us driven to retail therapy or an attempt to try and control other people or a whole host of other attempts to make ourselves happy apart from God. Brothers and sisters, the conviction of sin in the hands of the Spirit will make you feel a lack of joy and a desire for joy. The evil one will use that to make you pursue more sin, trying to find joy in more stuff. Make you find joy in the liquor cabinet. Make you find joy in a new job or a new spouse or, or something new and exciting. But the Spirit is driving you to God and repentance is the realization that joy and happiness belong to God and I can't find them anywhere else. In verse 9, we see the pain of conviction as the terrible discomfort of shame and guilt. As we are led to sing, hide your face from my sins, we are helped to see that the Holy Spirit will cause us to feel embarrassment and humiliation for what we've done. And like a felony on our permanent record can hang over our heads, this song leads us to sing, blot out all my iniquities, expunge my record of all of my guiltiness, O God. Shame and guilt can leave a mark on us that is incredibly stubborn and can hang with us for years and years and years and years and years. I bet there's more than one of us in our church that can think of a moment and you almost feel like you're there, even as a child when you were so embarrassed and so ashamed. You can feel that discomfort. You can feel the weight of that. And sin causes that in us as well. That sense of, if people find out about this, I will be so humiliated. The Spirit uses the pain of conviction, a sense of shame and guilt to drive us to God. The Spirit of God doesn't delight in spotlighting our guilt and shame, but these are tools in His hand to lead us to God in repentance. While guilt and shame will cause you to close the curtains and shut off the lights to unexpected guests who will find your house messy and your appearance disheveled, the prayer of repentance refuses to hide. It refuses to hide behind a wide variety of fig leaves. Just as Adam and Eve felt the guilt and shame of disobeying God, you and I feel a guilt and shame. And just as they hid behind fig leaves and hid behind trees and bushes, they hid from God. But repentance refuses to hide. It refuses to dress ourselves in self-righteousness. It refuses to put on a fake veneer that says everything is good, everything is right. Repentance knows that only God, only God can take away shame and the guilt of sin. Think about that. Did you know that your guilt and your shame can be taken away? It's not simply something that you have to put in the basement or put in the attic or put in the shed 
or put in a lockbox. Your guilt and shame isn't locked behind your how well you keep a secret. God can take, He can take away your guilt and shame. Every one of us bears good reason to feel guilt and shame before God, and every one of us struggles with guilt and shame in our relationships with one another. Not one of us is alone in those feelings. That's one of the great tools of the evil one is he makes you feel guilty and he makes you feel ashamed and then he tells you you're the only one. But the truth is, every one of us has done things that we regret. Every one of us struggles with guilt and shame. But God is calling out to us in our guilt and in our shame to come to him for acceptance and justification. And if through Jesus Christ, God can cover us in our shame and forgive our guilt, let it be known, God can cover our guilt and shame through the work he did in Jesus Christ at the cross, then you and I, the church, should be a place where we can grow in our ability to trust one another and help one another with those things that lead us to feel guilty and ashamed. Brothers and sisters, Guilt and shame will keep other people at a distance. We'll always feel a distance from God. We'll feel a distance from our spouse. We'll feel a distance from our friends. But if we truly know that our guilt and shame is covered in Christ, we can be a a church that doesn't hold other people's shameful deeds and, and guilty deeds over them. We can grow and become more of a church that is, that is able to hear other people's stories and other people's failings and other people's confessions, and we can help them overcome guilt and shame. As Christians, we need to put away our hiding and our lying and our attempts to justify ourselves. The healthy church, the church that has taken their guilt and shame to Jesus Christ and found it covered in Him, that church is a healthy church because they can speak out to guilty and shamed people. They, those people can come and feel they are welcomed for who they are. They can be accepted and they can find friends who are taking their guilt and shame to Jesus and walking in repentance together. We don't simply call shameful things not shameful. We don't simply call guilt not guilt. No, we own up to those things. We take them to Christ, receive his forgiveness, and we walk together in repentance, knowing that other people know what we've been through. In verse 10, David tells us of the pain of conviction that reveals his sinful heart and his ruined spirit that continually bears sinful fruit. David is owning the reality that sin simply grows within him like weeds grow in dirt. You don't have to work at it. Sin just grows within a person because human beings have a fallen nature. David is saying the same things Jesus says in Mark 7. Jesus says in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Spirit's work of conviction leads us to that inescapable truth that we cannot make ourselves right. We can't make ourselves right with God because our heart, the source of each and every one of our thoughts and each and every one of our decisions is thoroughly sinful. 
David is owning up to the reality that his heart is like a garden that automatically bears weeds. It doesn't automatically bear good things. The pain of realizing that we are fallen and that we are broken and that our hearts are depraved, that pain causes the realization that we cannot fix our sin. We cannot fix our sin or our sinfulness. And this leads David to pray for a new heart. Instead of feeling hopeless, repentance leads us to God to give what we need. David is really realizing he is so thoroughly broken and unable to live a life that's pleasing to God. But does he throw up his hands in hopelessness? No. He says, God, my heart is broken, and so give me a new heart. Give me a heart that doesn't bear weeds but bears good fruit. He goes to God to give him what he needs. And this is the heart of repentance, the prayer of repentance. This new heart is exactly what God promised through the prophets. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Instead of seeing our total depravity with hopelessness, repentance turns to God with the faith-filled desire to see this promise of a new heart and a new spirit fulfilled in God's new covenant with us in Christ. This is nothing we can do for ourselves. We cannot give ourselves a new heart. We cannot give ourselves a new spirit, but God can, and God has promised This is nothing we can do for ourselves, but the awareness of our inability is central. It's absolutely central to the act of repentance. The pain of being convicted of our inner sinfulness reaches out to God to give the gift of a new heart that He has promised and only He can fulfill. Hopelessness is not repentance. You, in your own strength, are completely hopeless and completely unable to make yourself right before God. But guess what? God has made promises to make you right before Him. And repentance is holding on to those promises, believing those promises to be true, and begging God to fulfill those promises in us. In verses 11 and 12, we see the fear of being cast out of God's presence and the turmoil of the possibility of watching the Holy Spirit move away. God's presence is the saint's delight, and fellowship with him is our greatest joy. But the Christian often forgets that the distance we feel when we offend God is never worth it. Our great joy, any person's greatest joy, is being with God and having fellowship with him. And we realize, we forget, that when we choose to sin, we choose to distance ourselves from God and His authority in our lives, we feel that distance and we feel that break in our fellowship. And it's never worth it. The joy that sin promises is never worth the joy of fellowship with God. Conviction of sin will sometimes feel like God is distant. 
Sometimes God may feel distant and cold when we are under the Spirit's conviction. But remember what the Spirit is doing in conviction. The Spirit is driving you back to God. And so that sense of God's distance, the sense of God being far or cold to us is the Spirit's work to drive us back to God. This pain of feeling distant from God is designed to help us to turn from our stubborn sinfulness and go back to God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. The evil one will tell you God is fed up with you and he's left you forever. But when God speaks to his humbled disciples, he says, I will never leave you. I will never, ever, ever forsake you. And in Romans 8.1, these beautiful words, there is therefore now no condemnation. For everyone? No. For those who are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the evil one wants to tell you that you are condemned and that God has forsaken you. When you feel distant and cold and God feels far away, we must remind ourselves of these truths. We must remember that the Spirit is bringing us back to a God who will never leave us, never forsake us, and never condemn us because we are in Christ. The prayer of repentance lays hold of these promises that God will never forsake the repenting Christian, and he will never condemn those who are in Christ. God's steadfast love will not wear out, and his mercy will never dry up, Repentance is coming to our senses and realizing with Asaph in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In Psalm 51, we are given a song for traveling back to God. This song helps us see the pain of conviction as a motivation. Not the motivation to run away from God or to doubt God's love but with the eyes of repentance to look to the cross of Christ and to see the clear picture of a God who has shown us his loving desire to cleanse us from our sin and restore us to fellowship with him. We looked at the, the pain of conviction that leads to the prayer of repentance and now this second essential Truth, this second essential reality of this song that leads us back to God is this. Number two, repentance empowers ministry. Repentance empowers ministry. There's a transition that happens in verse 13. The psalmist envisions life after repentance and after purification. He understands that repenting and being purified is not the end of the road. We read in verse 13, Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways after you have purified me from my sins, given me a new and a clean heart. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This congregational song is proof that repentance empowers ministry. David repented of his sin, and, though, and through his songwriting, he went on to be a huge help to us in our own struggle to turn from sin and turn back to God. David received God's purification after he repented. And God empowered him to help you and me to turn from our sins and to return to God. 
In verse 14, David believes God will deliver him from his guilt and through repentance change him as a selfish sinner into a praise-singing saint. This is a remarkable picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in our lives today. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor sinners, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see there? Do you see that huge gap, that chasm between God and man? But Paul goes on, he says, But by the gospel, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This glorious gospel changes us. It causes our tongues to sing of God's righteous salvation. Do you see, do you see the radical transformation that has happened in David from verse 1, now here as we getting to verse 14? David, all he could think about was his sin and his need to be cleansed. And now he's repenting and he's believing that God is willing and able to cleanse him. And now he's telling people, sinners, I found a merciful God. I found a God of steadfast love and willingness and ability to purify us. And the same is true for us. We can look to the cross. We can speak the name of Jesus and know that God is merciful willing to save and make something new out of those who were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 15, we see the fruit of David's repentance. Repentance refuses to stay hidden. Repentance is not something that can be done with no proof, with no effect. It longs to take wicked, deceptive, and adulterous lips and see them properly used to sing God's praises. David is asking the Lord to open his lips. David's lips were used for deception. David's lips were wicked, and David used his lips to sin, but now he's asking God to purify him such that those lips could be used to sing God's praises. Brothers and sisters, the evil one takes joy in making us see our sin as a disqualification for ministry, as a disqualification for serving God and singing his praises. But the psalmist tells us that it is his experience of God's mercy that empowered him to be an evangelist. It was finding God to be forgiving that enabled him to serve and to sing. David is not pretending to be good. David is not pretending to be worthy of being God's servant or worthy of being a song leader, a praise leader, a, a ministry partner. David is owning up to his sin and he's saying, God is merciful and it is my delight to sing of this truth. It is true, brothers and sisters, as the scriptures tell us, that an elder must be above reproach, but no pastor. Not a one has ever been without sin. If you have tasted the goodness of the gospel, what once was your shame now fuels your praise to God and your patience with other sinners. As Jesus taught, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And as that dear reformer Martin Luther once said, Christians are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread.
In verses 16 and 17, David helps us know that we cannot please God with sacrifices before we are restored to him through repentance. God delights in those who respond to the Spirit's conviction with a broken and contrite heart. It's only a broken and a contrite heart that will truly repent. This humility pleases God, and great sacrifices without that humility are worthless to him. Before wrapping up, David asks God to do good to Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. This reminds us that Jesus must first repair his repentant people through his sacrificial death and repair our fellowship with God in his kingdom. Only after repentance can we be reconciled. And only after we have been reconciled can we do the good deeds that are pleasing to God and bring glory to his name. There's many, in many of us, the temptation, in all of us, the temptation to skip repentance and to try to put something in the offering plate or to do some great deed for God and just and please Him with our own efforts. But what David is, is reminding us that until God has done the work of repentance and done the work of purification, all of our offerings, all of our givings are not pleasing to Him. We cannot earn God's pleasure. We cannot earn or, or fix things through the giving of gifts. We must repent, and we must believe that in Christ we have our purification. And only after that can the good deeds that we do, can the sacrifices of love that we make for God be pleasing in His sight. As I close, I simply want to reiterate That Psalm 51 comes to us not only by the working of the Holy Spirit, but also through the life and composition of King David. And not only King David at his good moments, but King David probably at his worst moments after he had committed grievous and destructive sin. It's really important that we take to heart the reality that God has chosen to display his mercy and his grace in the lives of people who have made messes of themselves. It's important for us to see that God had a purpose and God had gospel ministry for a great sinner like David. It's good for us to be reminded that every one of the apostles had a tarnished record. And even the apostle Paul would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Only those who have found the joy of God's mercy towards sinners who repent are able to sing and tell the glories of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, are you feeling the weight of your sin? Is it driving you to Jesus or is it driving you away from him? The Spirit will not let you forget about your sin, but the Spirit of God will not let you forget about Jesus Christ who was crucified for you. And when you have received that purification, God has promised to empower you for ministry. To be like one of those beggars telling other beggars, I'm not perfect, but I found mercy in the Lord Jesus. And I'd love to tell you about the mercy I found in in the Lord Jesus. Come, let's go as beggars together to Christ and find the love and mercy and the healing and the purification we all need. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that you would increase our joy, increase our hope, increase our delight 
in the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, raised for our justification, seated at your right hand, preparing a place for us until he, the time when he comes to take us to be with you. Father, I pray that you'd be working in sinners who are refusing to repent. I pray that you would be speak a word of encouragement to sinners who are repenting. And Father, I pray that our evangelism, our preaching, our ministry would be grounded in the gospel and in the reality that we have tasted and seen the goodness of a merciful God. Glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.